Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I wanted to start this show with saying how grateful I am for those of you who wrote us reviews on iTunes. Many, many, many thanks to Polyprof, DT Day Realty, and Sultan54. Your reviews matter a lot because it helps this show to rank higher in iTunes and increase our visibility. And as you guys know, this is my passion project, and I want to be able to reach as many people as possible because sex education matters, especially accurate scientific based sex education matters, and you're my ally in this path. Anyhow, our episode today is about how to connect with your sexual self, why sex matters. You know, it's interesting at times I do presentation for different schools and one of the challenging dilemma that many parents, many people in long-term relationship are facing is why do I need to invest this time and energy to be sexual with my partner. There's so many demands in my schedule. So unless we're clear about the why, it would be hard to make it a priority. We're going to talk about how you can expand your comfort zone and we're going to talk about sexual archetype and how you can discover your own sexual archetype. I'm very excited about the guest today. We had Dr. Jennifer Gonzalez about two years ago on the show. She talked about masturbation and the benefit of masturbation. So if you haven't checked out that episode, I really encourage you to do so. It's one of the most popular episodes that we have. There is a link in the show notes to that previous interview. Sociologist and intimacy coach, Dr. Jennifer Gonzalez is the author of the new book, From Madness to Mindfulness, Reinventing Sex for Women. Dr. Jen is a national speaker on sexual consent, couples intimacy, women's empowerment, gender communication, erotic play, and mindful sex. She has presented two TEDx talk and is a co-host of the podcast Sex Talk with Clint. Her YouTube channel is wildly popular. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Gonzalez. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Jennifer Gonzalez back on our show. Dr. Jen, welcome to our show. Hey, I'm so happy to be back. (laughs) (laughs) When we did the interview about masturbation to about two and a half years ago, and people were so excited about it. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) We got so many downloads. So when I saw your book, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. We can't can't have her back. So thank you for (laughs) coming back on our show. I appreciate it. I was sharing with you before we started the recording that I bookmark the hell out of the book. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is very interesting. Oh, I want to talk about this. So I have tons of different ideas to talk about, but I try to focus on the things that would be helpful for our listeners. One of the things that you talked about in the book that I think it's really important 
is talking about why sex matters. Because as adults, we have so many competing things in our life. We have our children, we have our work, we have our hobbies. Usually kind of like focusing on sex becomes so kind of like overwhelming, non-rewarding for people. So tell us why sex matters. Yeah. And I, you know, part of the reason why I address the question is that I think I mean, we talk about sex all the time. It's plastered everywhere in our society, but then it's also trivialized in some ways, you know, and politicians will be like, why are you putting money towards sex research? And so we have this, this uh, weird dichotomous approach to it. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to address it. I mean, and first and foremost, we are innately social creatures as humans. And that means that connecting, connection, physical touch with other humans for most of us is not just important, but, but vital to our well-being. And sex can be a piece of that for some people. So, you know, for some folks, sex and physical intimacy in that way is the way that they most feel loved and connected. And so I think, I also think that, that a deep connection with somebody physically, emotionally, and mentally, and that sex can be a pathway for this, I think that could be one of the most beautiful things we can share with another human being because it's so raw. Like intimacy at its core is, is letting your walls down, you know, and when you could do that physically and emotionally and mentally and put your armor down and that allow, create that safe space for someone else to do the same. So this like that to me is like the depth of what I really mean by intimacy and that someone else could do the same and they make it safe for you and you connect at that level. Like that is, that is a beautiful experience. Now it's terrifying <laughs> because you've let all your armor down and you could be disappointed and hurt or feel humiliated and ashamed. And we've got all of those things connected to sex, unfortunately. But um, the big picture around why it matters is that obviously besides procreation, uh, you know, it gives us a, a depth of a way of connecting with others. And then that includes, you know, experiencing pleasure or a sense of freedom or, you know, self-expression having fun, playing, you know, this is sex is a way that adults get to play because <laughs> we don't necessarily get to do that as adults. I love the list that, <laughs> that you mentioned. <laughs> and I think what gets in the way that what caused lots of controversy for people is the discomfort that you talked about in the book that they have around sex and sexuality. I love when you were talking the story of the woman in the book that, you know, she loved kind of like flirting and kind of like doing this playful exchange with the partners. But when it comes to home and when they go home with it, like whether it's a casual sex or any kind of other kind of sexual intimacy, is just like they feel discomfort and they just go with it. And mm -hmm. I feel that gets in the way of people kind of experiencing that depth of sexuality that you're talking, you were talking about it. Because in order for us to feel that, it's important to kind of like work through some of those discomfort. So I know in the book, you talk about it in depth that some of the reasons that we are as a society feeling this discomfort around sex. Can you tell us about a few of those things that you think would be relevant for our listeners? Yeah, for sure. And I'm, you know, my, my background in education is as a sociologist. So this is, this is my wheelhouse. I could talk about this stuff forever. Awesome. <laughs> um, well, and I think, I think we don't realize because sex is a natural thing, mm -hmm. you know, in that it's, we're animals. So that's what animals do to procreate. And so I still think, folks don't recognize how complicated sex can be physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, spiritually, and that there's gender differences depending on how we're raised. So, you know, the first place I always start as a sociologist is, is encouraging folks to look at what, 
What did you grow up with? What messages did you grow up with about um, what sex is? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it joyous and beautiful? Is it shameful and embarrassing? Is it something that's not supposed to be talked about? Is it, yeah, is it dirty? Is it shameful? And, you know, did you, did you receive any education around that, that it's okay to own this in your body or that desire is normal, whether you're, you know, raised as a male or a female? And so all of those messages, I mean, we get them. We get them from our family. We get them from our siblings. We get them from our neighborhood friends you know, from school and sex education classes or lack of sex education classes. We get them from early sexual experiences, you know, that may be consensual and and may not be governmental laws and teachings. Um, And as well as now at this point, just we're inundated with media messages from Instagram feeds to Hollywood movies to video games and magazines and even old school billboards, you know, that still, you know, quote unquote, sell sex, but it's really sort of selling women's bodies Mm -hmm. in this quote unquote, perfect form. So all of these, we emphasize the importance of sex in our society, but most of us don't grow up with frank, honest conversations about like, what's it really mean? What does it feel like? What's it feel like to be rejected? What's it feel like to to put your needs out there? And what's it feel like to make a, a sexual situation uncomfortable or to say no to somebody? And so if we're not taught how to, how, to, how to do that and how to honor our own voice and what's authentically right to us, but still be compassionate to the person in front of us, mm-hmm. you know, always that balance of self-compassion and compassion for others that our needs matter. But if we're with someone else, their needs matter as well. And how do we always keep that balance? We, we, that is not what we're learning around uh, sex. And, you know, and then you end up with coercion and, a culture kind of based on coercive values and how we approach sex and body image concerns and, you know, and then men not being allowed to express their emotions or feeling like that's okay. And then we could end up with, you know, violence in that way. And just, I mean, at the, in some way at the most trivial level, we end up with just not good sex. (laughs) And I only say trivial because those other things are actually, you know, physically harming to people, but it, it certainly doesn't, our, our version of how we learn sex or talk about sex or don't do it creates a lot of messaging that does not prepare us for how to, how to actually figure out this, this quite complicated thing, whether we want it to be complicated or not. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I love that you are starting the book talking about kind of like the conversation you had in your home around puberty. And I was thinking as I was le- reading it, I was laughing. I love the <laughs> humor. And I can connect to that because I got no information, no sex education. And my mom was a writer and she's like very open-minded, but I grew up in Iran in a kind of time period that was things were complicated. So she didn't know what to tell me. And so yeah. she didn't say anything. <laughs> well, and I could see, especially in a context like that, she, she doesn't want to open you up to further mm-hmm. danger in any way. So it's like, ah, if she teaches you things you're not supposed to know, right. then that could be bad. But then, right, we err on the side of the not teaching. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I mean, that, that's much, that's, it's a much more complicated setting even. So, but we still are, we suck at it in the United States still overall. So, right. And I love yeah. it in the book that you're saying that that doesn't stop people not talking about it. It doesn't stop teens <laughs> oh from having gosh. sex, learning no. about sex. I remember I discovered her, <laughs> this series of erotic French movies. 
that she had. (laughs) And that became my sex education. I mean, I might as well have learned it from her. So it's, I I love the book you're talking about. Talking to your, to like daughters and sons about sex, because they're going to learn about it one way or another. And perhaps they get, might get wrong ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my final chapters in my book is called Our Responsibility of how do we stop passing these uh, messages on specifically to younger generations of women, since my book is targeting girls and women. But overall, how do we how do we how do we how do we step up and be responsible and realize, okay, the buck can stop here. We can start changing these messaging. And it's true. I mean, research over research shows that actually the better educated kids are with comprehensive sex education they actually, it's not uncommon for them to actually delay, you know, sexual interaction because they get, they, they get, if their desires are, you know, honored and respected and, and spoken to, yet then they're also getting the big context of, hey, and there's actually real responsibility here, like real consequence, but that they don't only, you know, when you only speak to the consequences or the negative impact of something that teenagers are like, wait a second, this feels good. Like, I think maybe you don't know (laughs) what I'm talking about here. So I'm just going to keep this to myself and do what feels good. When you honor all of that and say, yes, oh my gosh, this can feel so good. And, you know, here's the potential emotional consequences and physical and financial consequences you know, so like, and, and, and then aiding them in, in figuring out how to balance that. But I mean, the big picture is we want to teach, we want to teach our kids and teens how to make critical thinking, you know, how to have critical thinking skills so that, because you can't be there for every situation that your kid's going to be in mm-hmm. growing up. So the best that you can do is talk them through, teach them your values, give them some actual skills with sitting with, you know, the discomfort um, of being in some of these awkward situations and then teach them how to think through mm-hmm. uh, those situations so that they can, I mean, and, and they have to mess up some because that's <laughs> all of us do. That is life. The only way we can go through life is trial and error. There is no other way to do it because we can't predict the future. And we, you know, we make the decisions with the best that we have in any moment. So give your kids, you know, the best that you can in a, in a nuanced way so that they can can make decisions that are good for them and good for others as well in terms of, you know, not, you know, coercing others and being consensual and communicating um, and just the balance of all of that. So, yeah, absolutely. I love that. And also, I think that if you're teaching our kids that sex is supposed to be pleasurable and then when things are not feeling quite right, they know that to speak up. But if they feel kind of like whenever I have sex, it's uncomfortable. So it's here comes another experience of me having a kind of bad experience. Right. And that is so true, right? Because still, I mean, and I know this was my sex education I got growing up in Pennsylvania. And I still think this is core for lots is that if if desire or pleasure is addressed all in sex ed or even with the joking of the teacher or the joking of boys or something like that, it is more in the realm of like, this is something that boys experience, but not girls. You know, I, I taught back in, in January of this year, I, two moms in North County, San Diego hired me to come in and talk to their 13 and 14 year old girls uh, about, and so they had gotten decent sex education, gratefully in Southern California, but they wanted me to talk about consent and coercion and porn and Instagram feeds and music lyrics and menstruation. And one of the most interesting things at one point I had, I was talking about masturbation and I had created scenarios for them 
like lifelike scenarios. And then I had to, you know, I had a bunch of emotions cards and I'm like, what emotions do you think the girl was feeling? What do you think her mom was feeling? You know, just to, to develop this, uh, this emotional intelligence around these topics, which they were actually quite good at. But at one point I, you know, and I was talking about this girl masturbating and doing whatever. And like three minutes in this one girl goes, wait, 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 wait. She goes, girls can masturbate. <laughs> and I was like, yes, actually they can. And I, it, it's so funny because it took her, it took like a few minutes for her to sink in and be like, oh, she knew about masturbation, but she thought that was something boys did. So again, it's like this realm of owning your body, owning your pleasure, experience, all of that is the realm of boys and males. Mm -hmm. um, but outside of that, not something that's normalized. And so that plays into exactly what you said. If you don't know that your pleasure is normal and supposed to be a part of why you're engaging in a sexual activity, not just the pleasure of the other, you won't know to speak up about that or you won't know to be like, hey, this actually wasn't that good or that it's okay for you to learn your body and share that, you know, what feels good to another. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and they've shown the research shows like for college women, pleasure is not a large part of how they define whether a sexual interaction was successful. They mm -hmm. define it and whether their partner had pleasure and an mm -hmm. orgasm mm -hmm. and that they didn't feel pain, you know, but not that they actually felt pleasure. So it's, it's amazing. We have not made progress mm -hmm. <laughs> since I was learning this stuff in the 80s in Pennsylvania, you know? <laughs> well, thank God to the French porn actresses that they learned my sex education. <laughs> they were very elaborate about uh, masturbation and all of that. <laughs> See, well, I actually think that would be, yeah, of if you're going to have to learn it through a movie, that's probably great because no doubt it was erotic and the women were sensual right. and they experienced pleasure. Like, that actually sounds pretty hot. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> By chance, I got a decent sex education. But I love that you you are talking about discomfort. And I know in the book, you talked about expanding our kind of comfort zone, not in the way of kind of like, oh, now we're liberated and let's try all this hundred different ways that we can right. have sex in a way that it's honoring our body and how it feels in our body. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So that is, I mean, if there's one main message of my book, that's what it's about in that our, you know, our comfort zone, it's got the word comfort in it for a reason. It's comfortable, right. <laughs> you know? And so, however, we know this, any personal growth or relationship growth requires us to step outside of our comfort zone. But not, you know, if in, we do it in huge ways and we do it for somebody else, that's not going to be good for us. Mm -hmm. But bit by bit, uh, learning to increase our emotional resilience to step outside our comfort zone. And so a lot of what keeps us in our comfort zone is what a lot of us have inherited as women from society is the shame or embarrassment or discomfort around sex or expressing ourselves or asking for what we want. Also embarrassment about our bodies and viewing our bodies or parts of our bodies as the enemy and always something that needs to be battled and not good enough. And then you throw in this aspect of, you know, that lots of folks are learning kind of through watching porn that they need to perform, mm -hmm. you know, that they need to look good and they need to perform for the other person in a certain way. So all of those things keep us, you know, in our comfort zone because to step outside of that, I mean, to address our shame or embarrassment or to voice something to a partner that you've never voiced before, it literally feels terrifying mm -hmm. inside of us. And so what I teach in my book is to help women. I mean, it, these messages help everybody, but you know, I target women in my book, is to identify where these fears and insecurities and belief systems 
And like we were talking already, you know, where did you learn them? Because that can be helpful to know that you actually learned this. This doesn't have to be your truth. This is someone else wrote your sexual story for you. You know, society wrote it, family wrote it, culture wrote it, religious religion wrote it. And, it, you know, and as soon as you're aware of that, you can start rewriting your own sexual story. But that is going to require getting outside your comfort zone. So getting clear on those emo fearful emotions and uncomfortable emotions like shame and the belief systems and identifying to the point of, and this is, you know, what I really call the applied mindfulness of my book, this somatic aspect of where do you feel this in your body? And I think this is one of the most powerful, it's the most uncomfortable thing we could do, but the most powerful thing for our personal growth. Where do you feel shame inside of you? Where do you feel embarrassment? When you want to say something, but you're afraid to speak your truth, where do you feel that? Well, you probably feel a constriction in your throat. Where, you know, if your intuition is speaking to you that your partner might be cheating on you, where do you feel that inside of you? All, like our body has so much wisdom inside of it. And particularly in the realm that I'm talking about from our neck down to our gut, all different areas in there, emotions kind of map to those areas where we feel them. And frankly, they feel really bad inside of us. I mean, that's why, you know, if all of us at some point most likely had some sort of shameful experience about our body or sex or asking for what we want or being rejected or being afraid of being liked or not at some point. And that feels so bad in us unless we have an adult or somebody that can help us process that, we'll start putting armor up. And we'll start, and patterns and triggers will get set so that we never have to feel that again because it feels really bad. And so my book is helping women slowly walk through compassion and kindness to self and gentle mindfulness, slowly take that armor down and actually move towards that discomfort mm -hmm. of those messages and those internalized emotions and so I, you know, I teach women how to do that and then how to actually have compassion and kindness and warmth towards yourself while you do it, because it feels bad. Like, you know, you're doing it right when it feels bad, but you don't want to, you don't want to then beat yourself up or get stuck in that place. And that's why that transition to compassion mm. and kindness is really valuable. I really enjoyed in the book, you kind of outline, I know one of the chapters on mindfulness, like five, six, seven different ways that people can practice mindfulness, even a stoplight, even walking, because I feel traditional mindfulness practices are not for everyone. So if our listeners are kind of thinking about, I want to give it a shot, I highly, highly recommend that chapter. I think it was very helpful. And I love that when you talked about opening the heart and closing the heart, because sometimes when we have these shameful experiences, we're closing the heart. And we're not even allowing ourselves to explore a little bit outside our comfort zone because that feels so scary. So the somatic part that you're talking about of kind of like really paying attention, what do you feel and how can you keep your heart open? Although when you're noticing, you're scared. Yeah. I mean, and that, you know, the title of my book is From Madness to Mindfulness, mm -hmm. and that is uh, Reinventing Sex for Women. And that madness is everything we've been talking about. That's what I call all of these internalized inherited messages from society and family and early experiences, but then shifting towards mindfulness. And, I, you know, and I think there's sort of a, a misunderstanding that mindfulness is like in our mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it is in that our brain makes stuff happen, but mindfulness is embodied awareness mm -hmm. and that and being able to write. And that's, it's a very, you know, once you start to pay attention to it, it's very 
noticeably visceral experience of like when your heart closes off because Mm -hmm. your armor's going up or when you are able to be in a state of compassion towards self or others or appreciation or joy or connection or pride, like you can feel, literally feel that expansion and warmth in your heart. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I anchor in one of the early chapters, I anchor folks just in that basic Mm -hmm. experiencing of that because that is, I mean, overall, the more that we can move through life with an open heart, mm-hmm. and this isn't, this doesn't mean that you unconditionally give to others whatever they want or mm-hmm. take shit from other people, you know, mm-hmm. in life, because it's always a balance of compassion for self mm-hmm. and compassion for others. And that is, I mean, we need an open heart towards ourselves to love and care for ourselves. And then how do we meet other people in that place as well? So, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that that part resonated with you. That's oh, cool. It was great. And I've been kind of paying attention to it myself. Kind of like, I feel like one of those medieval kind of gates coming down. <laughs> so <laughs> I have to catch it. I love that. Like you kind of reminded me to pay attention to that. And I think the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which was fascinating, you talk about sexual archetypes. So can you tell us yeah. about that and how we can use it as a tool to improve our kind of like getting over some of these negative sexual messages that we have? Yeah. So I, I am not trained in Carl Jung's work and I'm a sociologist, not a psychologist, but I, I, I take the concept of archetypes and his concept of universal patterns and kind of twist it and tweak it (laughs) and run with it in a lot of different ways. So I do want to honor where the concept comes from, but no, it is not really based in that. But the concept of an archetype, in case folks aren't familiar, is this idea of a a constellation of personality characteristics. Um, And I like to give the analogy, and I think I mentioned this in my book, if you suddenly in five minutes had to go on stage and perform in a play, and all you knew is, is somebody was like, hey, we need you to be the caregiver or the mom, or we need you to be the rebel, or we need you to be the hero or the warrior. Like, we get what that means. You know, it's like a constellation of personality characteristics. And, you know, and some argue that all cultures have these and that these are, these are part of like the human brain and, and collective unconscious. I, I don't know how I feel about that or not. It's an interesting concept to think about. But I pull on that concept and come up with the idea of a sexual archetype in that for women that are struggling to express themselves sexually or own their sexuality or they have, they have trouble giving themselves permission to be sexual or to ask for their needs or they just feel like right, they feel weighed down by the heaviness of societal or religious or family messages coming up with a sexual archetype is it's like a it's not and it's different than role playing it's like you kind of you embody this so i suggest that women find somebody in a movie mm-hmm. or a um a musical star or somebody in a book or even somebody they know in their life who embodies the sexual and sensual energy that they want for themselves. So the fact is, if you see it in another woman and you can kind of feel it and it resonates with you, that means you have it in you. Mm-hmm. You, just, you just need to give yourself permission to start living it mm-hmm. um, and living those values. And so it's, a, it's as weird as it sounds, you know, I, I think I gave this example in the book. I had a client years ago. Um, she was actually working on sensuality overall mm-hmm. and wanted to bring it actually just to, 
her coming of age as a woman and just, she was in her twenties and she just, she didn't feel like she moved through the world as a quote unquote woman yet. She feels sort of felt like a kid. Mm -hmm. And so she wanted to, you know, move into adulthood and be more sensual and also carry that into, you know, her, her sexual relationship with her boyfriend. And so she took on um, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Oh, love her. Right. And who, who just exudes this sensuality and confidence and grace and this client of mine, she, I love, I'll never forget this story. She's like, yeah, she goes, I had taken that on and, you know, in the first few days and I went the one time I was at work and I heated up my lunch in the microwave and I'm walking back to my desk and I'm, I'm eating my, my food. And then she goes, and then I paused and was like, wait a second, Catherine Zeta-Jones would never walk and eat her food at the same time. So she slowed down and it it actually gave her a much more mindful, present way, aware way of moving through her life. And then, and then she actually went out and she bought some different clothing that felt like it met. So like I said, she wasn't role playing, Mm -hmm. but she picked, you know, an archetype of something that felt right to her to step Mm -hmm. into. She got a different haircut and wore some different earrings and she was carrying herself with more confidence. Mm -hmm. And within a month or two of her starting this Coworkers started coming to her and like coming to her for advice and collaborating with her more. And so literally they were looking at her more as a, I guess, quote unquote, confident adult, just because she had transitioned into kind of feeling like a kid to feeling like an adult. Mm -hmm. And this is the way, you know, she did it. So obviously, you know, it's not explicitly sexual in this way, but I think it's a really great example Mm -hmm. And it is funny. And then she'd be in a sexual situation and then, you know, she'd kind of be going into a pattern and be like, wait, 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 what would Catherine Zeta-Jones here? And it's just like, it helps her drop into the moment in a different way. So anyway, yeah, I encourage folks to, I mean, I do this with male clients I work with as well. If they're trying to give themselves permission for sexual confidence, sometimes they're with partners that actually want them to take charge more, but they were raised with, uh, no, we're all supposed to be equal and I need to treat the woman with respect and I can't do anything ever without asking. And I was like, well, I hear her asking you to take charge (laughs) and that she will speak up if she's uncomfortable, you know, so on both sides. And I actually think, I think a lot of couples are struggling with this Mm -hmm. in our society because we've had very quick changes in gender roles Mm-hmm. Um, in our society. So even though a lot of the socialization that we've had at a young age is kind of similar, as adults, we're having different expectations of what it is to be in a healthy relationship and sex life. And I think folks don't know how to, how to transition what's happening in the rest of the world to the bedroom, and mm-hmm. they have fear around that. So I actually think archetypes can help them you know, step into a power and a connection and a confidence and a oddly actually being more mindful in the moment because they're not in their normal patterns and they're giving themselves permission to kind of like, it's not that you're quote unquote doing anything in particular, but you are changing your being. Mm -hmm. You're changing the energy that you bring to a situation. And I think when folks talk about good sex or good lovers, that's what it is. It's the energy of Mm -hmm. the person. It's their presence and connection and confidence and, and openness and energy that they bring to that. So if you can find a, a sexual archetype that represents that for you and helps you access it, it can be really helpful. I think that was such a fantastic way of putting it because I feel many of us, as you mentioned earlier, we kind of picked up the story of how we should be. So we are living our lives and our sexual lives based on this story. And this kind of examining the sexual archetypes almost can be like a dress rehearsal. 
kind of feeling that, let me see how this feels. Is, does this fit or not? And if it doesn't, you can try something else. But if it does, it gives you a template that you can function from there. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you think about the archetypes that we do grow up with, we kind of even, we have either have the Madonna mm. or the whore, you know, and we're not, we don't have any nuanced archetypes for women um, that kind of meet modern society mm-hmm. and, that, and that women can feel really comfortable stepping into. So I think we, we haven't been given many options, uh, but we can create new options for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Love that. And I think with the, this discomfort that you're talking about, that if I am kind of having this Madonna template or kind of good girl comp template, and I'm walking into sexual interactions, and it's hard for me to show up like for my body and for my sexual pleasure. And that can be cause some disconnection in the relationship and the sexual, our sexual lives. I, I can go about this for hours. And I know you, you do. <laughs> and yes. we just talked about like small, small, part of your book. What I love about your book, you give couples tons of good couples and individuals, tons of good communication tools that they can use for women to reinvent their sex lives. So I highly recommend people to check it out. So if they are interested, where would be a good place to find a book? Yeah. So again, the title is From Madness to Mindfulness, Reinventing Sex for Women. Folks can, I mean, it's on Amazon, so as in as a paperback or as Kindle. Barnes and Noble carries it online. There's some Barnes and Noble stores that also carry it. I know all the San Diego stores carry it, and some other major cities carry it. Some independent bookstores as well. Like I know, um, again, I'm in San Diego, so some of the spiritual bookstores and metaphysical and new age bookstores carry it. So, but obviously the the most direct way would be Amazon. (laughs) Although I do recommend folks support their independent (laughs) bookstores because I love those little stores are freaking awesome. (laughs) I know. I'm sad that they're going out of business, but there's been a little resurgent recently. So back in my hometown in Pennsylvania and I got to do, it's in the same town where my high school was. I got to do a book reading there two months ago when I was back and I was like, wow, this comes full circle. I mean, because the opening story in my book is me vomiting in fourth grade when they showed us the menstruation movie. And I was like, wow, I've come full circle back to my hometown to be talking about this book. But yeah, it's a new independent bookstore in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. And they just opened up in, um, in like May. So I'm hoping, you know, I send everybody there that I can and hoping that they can make it because it's such a neat community space. So um, mm-hmm. those are cool stores. Absolutely. So People can find it online or in their book local bookstore. Well, and if and, they don't have it, you can ask for it and they can order it for you too. Excellent. So, excellent. Yeah. And again, I highly, highly recommend it. Just it, I feel like every chapter was full of good, actionable things that people can do. Because I feel like you're not only reviewing some of the best research in the field, you're kind of adding lots of things that people can do. So thank you so much for your work. It was lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. I hope you found my conversation with Dr. Jen Gonzalez helpful. I love that she talked about tangible steps that you can take to increase your desire and talked about how to reconnect and cultivate a healthy sexual attitude. At the end, I wanted to invite you guys, if you haven't downloaded the checklist on how to increase your desire, I have this I created this 25 ways that you can increase your sexual desire. The link is in the show notes because sexual desire, a big part of it is psychological and 
because it's psychological, you have the power to increase it, to change it. It's about taking consistent, actionable steps. So if you are interested, definitely check it out. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode and I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.